You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Ah, Rhoda. You came just in time. We have so many fancy treats. Okay. Okay. Okay, so this week we're back into the book of Deuteronomy, the second Torah reading of the book of Deuteronomy. The Torah reading, as we mentioned, the book of Deuteronomy mentions as the reviews of giving Moshe, giving to the Jewish people what happened and telling them what occurred during the past 40 years. And that's as we continue into the book of Deuteronomy. Anybody that's ever traveled or knows that you travel around the world, it's many different kinds of airports all over the world, international airports of all kinds, and you meet people of all different sights and scenes. One of the most unique airports that exists of international kind is in Turkey. In Turkey has this international airport, it's like a hub for the whole Middle East. And when a person's in Turkey, um, actually my daughter that's flying to Israel for seminary, she's going through Turkey, it's a very common destination where people go through. But one of the things you find there very interesting is that you can have in that airport, they have a place of prayer. And in that place of prayer, you find Jews wearing their talus and tefillin. And right next to them, you have Muslims praying their five prayers a day. Next to them, you have a Hindu or a Sheikh doing his prayer and a Christian doing their prayer. But because it's an international place, people going to Japan, to Abu Dhabi, to Israel, you have all the different kinds of religions, so to speak, convening and coming all together. And when you think about this for a moment, and you see all the religions in front of you, And you ask yourself the question, what makes us different? Why are we different? Why is it that we believe that we are the authentic religion, while everybody else is copycats, if you want to call it? Every single religion, if you look at every religion, pick the religion, whether it's Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, you you pick itism, and you'll notice that one of the things that they say is they were there from the beginning of time. And not only that, were they there from the beginning of time, should you pick, should you, so to speak, pray to another God that's not theirs, what are you liable of? Capital punishment. Take Judaism. Gotta believe in one God. If you have any idols, or idolatry, is liable of capital punishment. Christianity believes that everybody should be a Christian. Muslims believe that if you're a Christian or a Jew, you gotta be a Muslim. You got it wrong. Not only that, even us as the Jewish people that we believe are, that we are the chosen nation, what do the Christians believe? Yes, we were, but then we lost it, so to speak, right? And the Muslims believe that not the Christians, not the Jews, they all have to become and believe in Muhammad. And all of us are just destined to doom and gloom. It's interesting, just a little side note, the only religion that does not believe, if you believe in something else, it's doom and gloom is Judaism. Judaism doesn't feel threatened by everybody else. For a Jew to serve idolatry, he's liable of capital punishment. But for a non-Jew, they can believe in whatever they want, to a certain extent. But the question is, and let's take it a step further, what is the difference? If we need to break it down and look at the authentic realization of where Judaism comes from, how do we know and how are we so sure about what Judaism is, in contrast to the other different religions that exist. Where do we see in our small, because Judaism is probably the smallest observed religion, from the, talking about from the major ones, Christianity, Catholicism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, they all have many different, uh, billions of people, some of them. Why is Judaism, what's the most authentic thing that we find that we get in Judaism? 
And if we look in this week's Torah reading, in the Torah reading of Ve'ez Hanan, where Moshe reviews with the Jewish people the episodes that happened around the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai, it is in two verses that we come to appreciate and understand and realize the true authenticity that exists in Judaism that you will not find in any other religion. If we want to call the Torah reading of this week, we can probably call it the Torah reading of Revelation. Because most of what the Torah reading talks about, talks about the episodes, the grandeur that happened when the Torah was given on Mount Sinai. And all the great revelations that happened, the thunder, the lightning, the voice of God, and all the different events that happened surrounding Mount Sinai. And Moshe, when he tells the Jewish people about it, he doesn't say like just the information that happened, like in the Torah reading of Exodus, where he says, okay, God came on the mountain, Moses went up the mountain, these are the Ten Commandments, boom, 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 and they just says the events has happened. But Moshe gives it with an introduction, he gives it with an affirmation, he gives it with a whole episode of everything that happened, and he's fantasizing it, not fantasy, but he's actually making it with all the bells and whistles and the trimmings that happened. And why does Moshe do this? It's because he wants to assure and redefine, or not only redefine, but re, uh, you know, commit the Jewish people to something. Because if you recall, the nation that he's talking to are not the same people who are by Mount Sinai. This is already the next generation that's going into the land of Israel. And because this is the next generation going into the land of Israel, it was their parents who stood at Mount Sinai. They physically, many of them, may, might not have been there. So therefore he has to relive that experience and he has to bring to the fore what actually happened there from the beginning to the end and the dramatic scenes that unfolded, not just mentioning a little highlights that were there, but he goes through every single step of the way that were there. Even more so, what Moshe is telling them, and over here Moshe is giving them the ability to understand and appreciate the eternal message of the Torah and to show the truth and the consistency of what the Torah is all about. Because what does Moshe tell the Jewish people? And he says, look at this. What's the biggest proof that something is true? How do you know something is true that you weren't there by? How do you know it's true if you weren't there? It's passed down from generation. But how do you know it's true if you weren't there? Because you, you don't. Now, I'm not talking about the Torah. I'm talking about any event that happens. Oh. An event that happens. Somebody comes and tells you a story. How do you know the story is true? The only way you know the story is true is the person says, I myself saw it. I'm a witness to the event. How do we take any event that happens? A person gets into an accident. They go in front of a judge. How does the judge know that the person saying the truth? He brings witnesses. Witnesses say, we saw the event that happened. Could the witnesses be lying? Yes. But generally we suppose that people that are coming to say witness, if there's two people that corroborate their words together, the more witnesses that are corroborated, the more testimony that we have that are the same, we know more likely that it happened. If you're going to say one story, somebody else is going to say another story, then I know that didn't happen. The same idea is also when we talk about Moshe telling the Jewish people. Moshe tells the Jewish people about the events that happened at Mount Sinai. And over here he's telling them is number one. This revelation that happened, happened in front of millions of people. 600,000 people just between the ages 20 and 60. There were older people, there were younger people. There were women as well. If you take all the people together, there was at least, on a, on a very uh, sophisticated figure, it's at least 3 million people were there. There was people between just ages over 20, was over 600,000 people. So now take Judaism for a moment. Judaism, the greatest revelation in Judaism happened in front of how many people? In front of three million people. Contrast that now with any other religion that you can think of. Every other religion, you name it, only happened in front of one person. One single individual had a vision. He then wrote it down, documented it, taught it to his disciple. His disciple then taught it to other people. And from there it grew to another religion. That means the only religion... The only authentic, if you want to say the only factual religion, because how do we judge facts? By witnesses, by people that observed it, by people that saw it, is Judaism. It's the only one that has witnesses to it. No other religion has any witnesses to it. Every other religion, 
was only about a talk that somebody gave back from one generation. It's more of a, if you want to call it a legend that was passed from one generation to the next or from one person to the next. But that legend was only observed by one individual. Judaism, on the other hand, is something that was a communal event. Three million people saw it, observed it, lived it. It wasn't something just told by one person. If we look at the actual Torah reading, in this week's Torah reading, we actually read the same Torah reading on the morning of Tisha B'Av, which is on Thursday. And what does Moshe tell the Jewish people? He says the following words. He says, but you should be careful, watch your soul, and don't forget the things that your eyes saw, lest you take it from your heart all your days of your life. And you will teach it to your children and your grandchildren the day that you stood at Mount Chorev. You will make sure you will watch it and keep it to your soul because you have not seen no other image. From that day that God has spoken to you on Chorev from the fire. You may go to other gods and do and make images, whether it's male or female. But days will come and your children will ask you, has anybody ever made such a revelation, has seen such a revelation ever from the day that the world was created until today? Has anybody ever seen such a revelation from the day that the world was created until today? Has anybody ever heard the voice of God or seen those images? Never. Not only that, you heard it, you saw it, and you survived. Moshe's telling the Jewish people, you want to be able to know what is authentic? You want to know if something is true? Look. Go back in time, or go ahead of time and see. Has there been any other event in Jewish history, or not in Jewish history, in world history, that three million people observed, saw, all saw the same thing? from the time of creation until today, you will not find such an event. My Nachmanides take it a step further. Nachmanides explains that the idea behind the uh, prohibition of idolatry is dependent on this vision. Because Moshe tells the Jewish people, has anybody ever observed such a thing and you're going to go still and make an idol? That means what are you going to make an idol for? You all observed it. Every person saw it. It's the biggest proof you can ever get or ever imagine. Moshe over here is reminding the Jewish people something which is so important that hasn't changed until today. If you want to take any other religion, let's take for example Christianity. Christianity was a very famous religion, Catholicism, Christianity, all part of the same thing. And most of them work on the same theory. One holy man had an episode and because of that he passed it on to a student and therefore they practiced that religion. Take, for example, Christianity. You have a fem fellow by the name of Shaul, the Tarsite, right? He was a, a Jewish person. He met, uh, according to him, uh, J.C. in the desert. He told him that he was uh, born from the Virgin Mary, and therefore he came back and taught everybody else, and he changed his name to Paul, and that's how Christianity came about, right? And many years later, and this is starts telling the people about the miracles that he had and the, the episodes and all the different visions that he saw. The same idea is also you take Islam. Islam Muhammad was once walking and all of a sudden he fainted. And while he fainted, he saw, he said, a vision of the Prophet came to him and told him what, what he had to tell the people. And then he wrote the Quran and that's he was able to teach Islam to his people. But again, all these people, there's just one person who was telling a vision, he was charismatic or whatever it was, that it was able to change and get people to follow his ideas. Hinduism, the same idea. Buddhism. You have a guy who was a very famous Indian, wealthy Indian, by the name of Siddhartha Gautama. He was stand, sitting under a tree, and all of a sudden he felt a, a, an elevation, and he had some type of vision, and that's what Buddhism came about. So again, you're looking at all, if you want to believe it, God bless you, enjoy it. But it's all dependent on one person's testimony of what he saw, what he's giving over, what he's imagining on his imagination. So either he was a very good person who was able, charismatic, to be able to transform people's ideas and beliefs based on that. But at the end of the day, it's only based on one person's testimony. Not only that, on the other hand, look at Judaism. Judaism is one nation, one concept, one idea that children have received by tradition from their parents from generation to generation and this was it. 
They say a very famous story, an unbelievable, you know, that brings out this concept. When the beginning of the state of Israel, Ben-Gurion came to meet Eisenhower at the time. And Israel was being attacked from all sides and needed help from the American government to be able to support them financially with uh, arms and many different things. But at the time, I think it was 1949, 1950, you're talking about right after two years after the state of Israel was, what was it? It was a small, small little thing. And at the time, the Secretary of State like, looked at Ben-Gurion and said, like, big deal, who are you? A little representative from a tiny sliver in the Middle East? Who do you represent even? What are the Jews in America, the Jews in Australia, the Jews in Europe? What are the Jews in anywhere in the world have to do with this little tiny sliver of Jews that have to do in Israel? Ben-Gurion looks at the Secretary of State and he says, listen here. His name was Mr. Dahls, Poster Dahls. He says, listen here, let me ask you. How many years ago was America founded? 200 years, you know, America's 200 years old at the time. What was it? How did America discover the Mayflowers came? He says, let me ask you, you ask an American kid, any American kid, who was the captain of the boat when Mayflowers came? How many of them know? Probably none. He says, you go over to any child, a child in America, a child in Israel, a child in Europe, a child in Germany, a child in Russia, a child, any Jewish child. Ask him, who was the leader that took the Jewish people out of Egypt? Ask him, who was the one that brought the Jewish people into the land of Israel? Ask him, who was the one that waged war against the Philistine? The answer they'll give you is the same answer that you'll find out what do the Jewish people in Israel, in this sliver of land, have to do with every other Jew around the world. The Jewish people are the only, only religion, the only people who are intertwined, interconnected, interrelated by a story, by a history, by a teaching that has not changed over the past 3,000 years. It's something that parents continue to give from one generation to the next generation. And this is the traditions that we have. Maimonides brings this actually into Jewish law. And he takes a very, very important law from this. He says, imagine somebody comes tomorrow and makes miraculous miracles. And he says, you know what? From today, Judaism, you have to start behaving a different way. You have to start doing this in religion of Judaism. Maimonides says, you should know that this person is a false prophet. How do you know he's a false prophet? And we're going to learn about it in two weeks' time in the Torah readings. That the Torah comes along and says, if a person comes along and makes a miracle, if he tells you to deviate from the words of the Torah, he's a false prophet. Why is he a false prophet? He's making miracles. And Maimonides explains and says very clearly, how did the Jewish people get the Torah? Every single Jew was there by Mount Sinai. Did Moses make any miracles when he taught the Torah? God made miracles. There were great events happening that they witnessed. But when Moses taught the Torah, there was not a miracle. He taught the Torah in front of all the people. That was the miracle. That's the way we know that it's authentic. Just because a person makes a miracle doesn't mean he's authentic. Many people can do magic. doesn't make it authentic. Moshe was passive together with the rest of the Jewish people there to accept the Torah. And because Moshe was part of the Jewish people, he stood together with everybody else watching the miracles. The Torah cannot be deviated from as it was given by us to all the Jewish people together at one by Mount Sinai. But if we look a little further into the words that Moshe tells the Jewish people, but he goes a step further. And Moshe stresses that he's not just talking to the people then. That he's talking to every single generation that there's going to come, Jewish people. And you should know that I'm not talking only to you here today, but even for future generations. That all of them will believe that the Torah was given to the Jewish people. Why? Because we have millions of witnesses. Moshe stresses the fact not only with us standing today as God made this covenant, but with every single Jew for generations to come, this covenant was made with them. He says, just like you, the generation that was not there standing at the Torah, in your bodies, physically, maybe, observing it, the covenant is made with you, so too every single Jew for future generations. What is Moshe telling us? That Moshe is telling the future generations that the reason why we believe in the Torah 
The reason why we know that the Torah is authentic is because it's consistent and it's been throughout the generations, but even more so is because we all there witnessed it. All the Jewish people were there. That fact that there's so many witnesses to the same event gives the validity, if you want to say, that makes the Torah a fact and gives us the ability and obligation <coughs> that we have to continue to keep to the words of the Torah. And because of that, all of us, whether it's every single Jew, no matter where the Jew may be, whether you take a Jew from the Far East or a Jew from the West or a Jew from Sephardic origin, from Ashkenazic origin, they all have the same Torah. They have the same tradition that their father gave from father to son, from parent to child, from generations and generations to come. The question is still, <clears throat> at the end of the day, I wasn't there. You weren't there. Maybe we just had some person who came up with a great story and made it all believable. How do we still show maybe Moshe had just that was smarter than all the other religions, came up with a better story? How do we know that Moshe didn't make it up, so to speak? What tells us that the story of the Torah is something which is unique and is authentic? So many people maybe believe in the same nonsense. What gives it greater authenticity? Even more so. Somebody can even come along and say, there's two ways how Moshe could have came up with this creative part. There's two types of lies a person can say. A current lie or a lie that happened in the past. That means Moshe could have stood to the people in the, that, came out of the, uh, that came out of Egypt as they're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai and create this grandeur sound effects through magic, say it's God speaking to them, and really it was Moshe making it all up. And they all witnessed it, right? But it wasn't God. How do you know it was God? Maybe. Or you can say, another way is, talking about a lie in the past. That means, let's imagine, after the destruction of the second temple, the people didn't know where to go. There was some need to make these wandering people some type of a cohesive flock. So some guy, after the destruction of the temple, said, you know what? In many years ago, I met a person from a cave, and he came and told me a story. And that's why we have the whole Torah. How do we prove that the Torah is divine? How do we know the authenticity of the Torah more than anything else? That this is divine more than anything else? And you're going to say, you know what? How do I know? Because that's what my father told me. Maybe your father also was vulnerable and gullible and bought into that bogus story. Just because your parents told it to you makes it true. How many parents, how many people believe in the two theory? Your parents told it to you, and your parents told it to you, but we all know it's bluff, but everybody says it. So just because your parents told you something, doesn't mean it's true. On the other end, it means your parents are liars. They might have told you a lie. So something doesn't add up here. So somebody could have sold a bowl of uh, who knows what to somebody and made up a story. Not only that, Let's take it a step further. Many different gener generations have gone on from different places. People have moved from place to place, and it could be the story evolved and changed and came. How do we know it's the same story they were saying many years ago? Maybe the story came into a whole different story that they had then. It could be there was a story that was made up. And the answer is multiple answers. But let's take the simple and obvious answer. The bottom line is, if it was so easy to sell a story and get so many people to believe it, how come no other religion came up with that idea? Every other religion, it's one guy telling a story and it catches on. Nobody had this episode in such a way that if you can tell a lie and make up a story and do this magic, whatever it was. And from the three million people, don't you think somebody else would copycat Moses? Today, as of today, nobody has done it yet. Even with all the special effects that they can make today. Nobody chose that way. The very fact that nobody chose that means it was probably impossible for you to sell a lie to that many people. Even more so. Look at the words that Moses told the Jewish people. Moshe tells the Jewish people, he says, Kisha al they'll ask you in a few days. Has anybody ever, since the time of the creation of the world, until today, had such an impact? Spoken to you like that? 
When Moshe was telling them, and Moshe was saying, should somebody come along and say the same thing I'm saying? Has anybody? No. The very fact that I'm the only one that said such a thing means it's authentic. Because if it was so easy to copy, then you'll have copycats. Guaranteed. Because look, all the other religions are trying to claim authenticity. If they would have a manner or a some type of method to be able to claim authenticity, they would have copied. The very fact they didn't, Moshe says, is step number one to showing you the authentic traditions and that it's divine. And the reason is because it's very simple. If I want to convince somebody of something, take for example a rumor. How does a rumor start? Tell one person a secret at a time. If I were to stand up in front of a group of people and say absolute nonsense, even if I do all the facts to prove it, chances are I'm going to have one person in the room that's a skeptic and right away debunk the whole idea. The more people I say something in front of, the more chances I have of that idea being debunked. Therefore, if I want to spread a lie or a rumor of something, my best option of doing it is telling one person at a time. I tell that one person, that person is convinced, he goes and tells his friend and his friend and his friend and his friend, and there's no way of checking where the story really came from. And this way, you can spread any rumor or lie you want. And you just repeat your lie again and again, and the more you repeat it, the more people believe it. The story changes as a person tells another person. As you can, that's true. That's true, and that's not necessarily. But you see, there's other religions that have gone that way, and that's why you see in Catholicism, there's Christianity, there's Protestants, and there's many different factions. But the bottom line is, the religion, so to speak, still has some shape or form. But uh, yes. A lie because many people keep on repeating you have the broken telephone theory mm -hmm. and because of that it loses its authenticity. Exactly the point. How much more so? Now take it even a step further. Let's say we go by the theory that Moses created this black magic and made this beautiful fanfare events and side effects to make the mountain make noises and all that stuff. Don't you think just from looking at the Jewish people's behavior over the 40 years where they were skeptic about everything don't you think they would have questioned that? Not only that, just a year later, Korach comes along and wants to make a coup. Korach doesn't say Mount Sinai didn't happen. It was nonsense. You were a fantasy. You were dreaming. Korach says, I want to be in charge. I also want to be a leader. Nobody throughout the 40 years ever questioned the story of Mount Sinai. The first people to question it would be the Jews in the desert. They questioned the mana. They questioned everything else. Don't you think that if there would be a probability that it wouldn't be true, they would be the first people to ask about it? They'll say, you're a fantasy, you're just magic, this is nothing, this is nonsense, go back to where you came from. Don't make dreams and start telling us what to do. Even more so, if it's a religion that doesn't demand anything of you, okay, you have a fantasy, you can have your fantasies, what does it bother me? But Judaism is the most obligatory religion. To be part of Judaism means you have to put on tefillin, you have to keep Shabbos, you have to keep kosher, all these laws. The first knee-jerk reaction of the Jews would have been, take your laws, take your fantasy, and tell it to somebody else. We don't see any of the Jewish people rejecting the laws. Not only not rejecting it, but these laws and mitzvot were passed down from one generation to the next, so we can keep on doing those exact same mitzvot that were given then. The fact is that even when a person comes about creating a religion, wouldn't do such a thing. If I want people to be on my side, why would I give them 613 laws that burden their life? The first thing I would tell them, oh, you're free, you can do whatever you want. Of course everybody would follow you. But even more so, there's a rule in science, everything is cyclical. Everything that happens in life, everything in nature is cyclical. Whatever happened today, in 30 years it might happen again. What happened today also happened 30 years ago, and there are cycles of things. And we see this in news. You used to look in the news, you know. Uh, there are certain styles, models, religions, hypes, fads that keep on going in and they go out, they go in and they go out. When you talk about a lie, and you want to say that a person, um, you know, this type of event, you would find it repeated again. If it worked so well when the Jewish people came out of Egypt, a person would try it again and see if that works. 
You see that sometimes uh, people, there were religions, you know, there, was, uh, there were cults that they, that they convinced, try to convince people of different visions that the people had, like the guy that had the cult, David Koresh, where he convinced people that he saw some type of vision and he got everybody to, or the guy that everybody went to sleep with quarters, or drinking, the, the one that he got them to drink a certain drink and said they're going to go straight to heaven. But even then, did he stand up in front of a group of a thousand people in heaven? No, because nobody would believe him. He said to one guy, he says, I have a secret potion. That guy said, ooh, you want to go to heaven? He told another secret guy, this is a secret that's only between me and you. Now all of a sudden you feel like you got the in. So therefore he convinced them, this is if you have a charismatic person. But if you would sit in front of a class and say, okay, everybody, tomorrow we're singing our secret potion, we're going to heaven. How many people do you think will believe? He actually did. How did he do it? Only after he convinced a group of people to follow him. Mm-hmm. Same thing as with the guy with the quarters. Remember, they went to sleep and they told him they need quarters to get upstairs. Also, they went and killed themselves with the quarter. But what was it? You see, it's a cycle. You have these type of people who keep on believing in these types of things, attracting the same vulnerable people, mm-hmm. promising the same type of thing, because it's, it worked once. The guy said, oh, the guy tried it 30 years ago. Let me try it again now. And they do the same type of method. Mm-hmm. But let's go a step further. And so the reason why you can't convince, so that's why you can't convince of a current lie. Why? Because there's so many people there, somebody's going to call you out on it. Mm-hmm. What about a lie that happened in the past? Maybe after the destruction of the temple, somebody came along and said, this is a story that happened. Some guy came out of a cave and said, what happened? Number one reason is, there was never a point in Jewish history from the time the Torah was given until today that the traditions of the Torah have been stopped. Maimonides actually enumerates from the time the Torah was given to Moses all the way until the closing of the Talmud how the traditions that were given from Moses on Mount Sinai were continued to pass down. Let's take an example. How a mezuzah is written. It doesn't say anywhere in the Torah how a mezuzah has to be written. It says you should write it on your doorpost. I can take spray paint and write it. It doesn't say what I should write. But you can find the oldest mezuzah. Go how many years did you want to go? A mezuzah was always written the same way. A tradition that was passed down from Moses to Joshua to the elders and continued until throughout the Talmud until today. So if it was a lie that came up saying later, we would find some evidence and we wouldn't find things from so old. We'd find it differently. Or we wouldn't even know that the traditions were passed down. We know that there's no place in the Torah, no era in Jewish history where there wasn't a time where Jewish people were passing down those traditions. Even more so. You can't say that after the destruction, all of a sudden the Jewish people started making up the Torah. Because during the, before the destruction of the temple was already the era of the Mishnah, Hillel and Shammai already debated the Torah, already spoke about the Torah beforehand, and even before Hillel and Shammai, the time of the prophets and everything else. So it's impossible that this, so to speak, lie came about after the destruction of the temple. Even more so, one thing you find a sort of an obsession in Judaism is that we always like to quote the people who created that kind of subject in the Torah. For example, ask any child, who wrote the Mishnah? Rabbi Yehuda Nasi. Who brought the Torah to the Jewish people? Moses. Who was the one that took the Jewish people down to Israel? Joshua. Who was the one that after the destruction temple? Was Ezra. We always give credit, so to speak, to the authors. The very fact that we know and that we understand and we appreciate who was the author of every item gives us also a realization that throughout the ages there was this ongoing tradition passed down from generation to generation. So it's impossible that if this came up out of nowhere, just some guy came out of a cave and told us the Torah, that nobody knows who he is. Because everything has an identity, everything has a source, everything we know who the person behind it is. I'll give you an example. The Zohar. The Zohar is considered the Bible of Kabbalistic philosophy. The Zohar was author of the Zohar, is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai. The whole the Zohar quotes Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai. However, the Zohar was only discovered 700 years later by a fellow by the name of Moses de Leon in a cave where he found the writings that were ascribed to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai. Nobody says that the Zohar was around, that we had the Zohar before that. 
We know it was found by Rabbi Moses de Leon. However, we believe that it was written by Rabbi Shemar Yechai 700 years later. It's a belief. It's not a fact. We, do we know it? Could be. But at the end of the day, we believe that we have a divine inspiration from many different scholars that told us that it was written by Rabbi Shemar Yechai. Who was the one that brought it to the fore? It was Rabbi Moses de Leon, a Kabbalist in his time. Why did he have to bring it to the fore at that time? Because the world needed Kabbalah at that time to be able to survive. And from then on, it kept on being evolved until we have today modern-day Hasidism to be able to continue in the study, to be able to give energy to Jewish people, especially in the dark times of exile. That means as the exile gets worse, or as it gets darker, so to speak, God gives us the antidote to be able to deal with it. And therefore, in the earlier generations, where they, of course, had the esoteric teachings of the Torah, but it wasn't a separate book, it wasn't a separate entity, because they didn't need it. But as the Jewish people's persecutions and difficulties and their neglect, if you want to call it, for Judaism began to increase, the more we receive spirituality to inspire us to be able to keep with it. And that's why today we have... In our generation, we have the most revealed amount of the esoteric teachings of Torah because of it, because of our challenges that we have to deal with. The same ideas also look throughout the Jewish people. If there's one nation in the world that was persecuted the most, generally what happens under persecution? You diminish what you're studying. People that are under persecution are not necessarily learning their sciences, their math, their intellectual parts of it. Under persecution, the first thing to go is the intellectual part of the person. They're busy fighting for their life. But you will not find one era in Jewish history, regardless of what persecution the Jewish people went through, where the Torah wasn't with them, where they did not study Torah. Even when studying Torah meant that they were going to be killed for it, the Torah was still with them. That is because the effect, the idea, the event of Mount Sinai is the most authentic, divine event ever in, the, in human uh, history. From the beginning of times until today, the only real event that happened, the only real authentic event, is the time of the giving of the Torah. As we see it in this week's Torah reading, where Moshe says something very interesting. When he asks the Jewish people, has anybody ever heard the word of God? Has anybody ever heard the image of God? and survived. He finishes the words Vayechi, and lived. What does that mean? What does it mean, and they survived? What does it make a difference if people lived or not? If they died in the desert or they didn't? <coughs> because many people can come along with a story and say, you know what? Three million people saw the event. But they all died. I'm the only survivor. There's actually a cult like that, Tari Kishnas. They said three million people saw it, but because they were so um, mesmerized, because that revelation was too strong for them, they all died, and he's the only survivor, and he's coming to tell you what really happened. And therefore, you follow me, you'll be able to get the revelation too. <coughs> What's the proof that you're going to survive? That's a different story. But the bottom line is the very fact that Moshe comes alone to the Jewish people and says, no, you survived it, you saw it, you appreciate it, you lived through it. You didn't die because of it. The very fact that you live through it means that this is a living organism. This is something which is authentic, divine, which never ever happened in history again. The very fact we continue to say, many times people ask, why is it that God had to make all these miracles? Why did he have to make the whole grandeur and sound effects when the Torah was given? What was the purpose of making such that you were able to see the light, to see, hear the lightning and see the thunder and the fire and the sound of the shofar? What was the need for all of it? What was the need for this whole charismatic event? If he wants to impress the nations of the world to show off. And in fact, what God was showing the Jewish people is that in order to be able to say something is true and authentic and eternal, you yourself need to be authentic, true, and eternal. And being that the entire purpose of Judaism is to be a light unto the nation, the entire purpose of Judaism is to be a role model for the rest of the world, how can we be a role model if we're not authentic? And therefore, what did God have to do? God had to make an event by the giving of the Torah, which was paranormal, so that we should experience it, so that we should be so convinced beyond the shadow of the doubt that this is true, so that we can spread the message of God. Because if we would have doubts in it, how can we teach anybody else about it? How do I know God is true? 
to see the only way we had the ability to see somewhat how divine and how true it is was only because of that. To take away any shadow of the doubt. This week, we commemorate Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, which is the saddest day of the calendar. And as I mentioned in the beginning, we also read this Torah reading on Tisha B'Av. The event on the calendar which mourns the destruction of the first and second temple, mourns many different atrocities that happened to the Jewish people. And on Tisha B'Av, besides reading the events of what happens on the actual, uh, during the time of the giving of the Torah, but there are four verses that we begin with. Another few verses which one may wonder, what's the Torah telling us and what's Moshe telling the Jewish people? And this, so to speak, gives us the strength, the fortitude, by reading these words of the Torah, that if the previous proofs that we spoke about to the authenticity of the Torah are not enough, just by reading these first few verses gives us the ability to truly appreciate the gift that God has given the Jewish people. What is Moshe saying? Moshe is telling the Jewish people and prophesizing about the importance of keeping the Torah. And he says, what happens if you don't keep the Torah? And what happens if you don't keep the Torah? Not only you don't keep the Torah, but you decide to wander off and follow and serve idols and serve every wood, stone, and tree that exists. Then you will end up suffering. You'll go through terrible trials and tribulations, atrocities that were maybe nobody's ever seen. You will be left to be the smallest of all nations of the universe. Almost gone. But over here, Moshe says one thing. After he says, what may happen to you? He tells the Jewish people, you'll be in your toughest times, you'll be difficult for you, but God will find you. And then finally, he will bring you back. God will return you from all nations of the world and bring you back to the Holy Land because God is merciful. He won't forget you and won't forget the covenant that he made with your elders. What is Moshe telling the Jewish people? Moshe is telling the Jewish people, if you look, and just to bring it out even deeper, there's like, uh, if you look back in history, there were, so to speak, uh, people that came up with predictions of what's going to happen to the Jewish people. There's some type of encyclopedia or book that was written by some Egyptian scholars about 1,200 years BCE. And in it they write, the future of the Jewish nation is gone, over, done. We're never going to see them again. An Egyptian scholar. Are the Egyptians around? No. Are they here to say what happened? No. But in fact, if you look all about in all the different texts of eight quote and talk about the Jewish people, what do they talk about? God forbid the destruction, the annihilation. The Egyptians want to annihilate us, the Babylonians, the Romans, take an country, take an emperor, take a nation. They all look for our demise and to get rid of us, to wash us into the sea. What is God telling us? Over here, God is telling us that, yes, they're all going to try to hurt you. Moshe is reminding the Jewish people, you might be the smallest, they're all going to try to pick on you. But guess what? The greatest miracle, the greatest miracle that God ever performed is not the miracle of the crossing of the sea, not the giving of the Torah of Mount Sinai, not the Jewish people conquering the land of Israel is the Jewish people's survival. The fact that we can sit around here today and study the same Torah that Moshe gave the Jewish people 3,300 years ago, that's the miracle. The survival, and not only the survival, the thriving of the Jewish people, that we are around, notwithstanding all the persecutions that we've gone through, is the most authentic miracle that we are divine. That we are the nation that God chose. The Egyptians are not around. The Babylonians are not around. The Persians are not around. The Spanish are not around. The English. Nobody's superpower anymore. Any nation that ever tried to look for the demise of the Jewish people to wash them into the sea doesn't exist. They had their ups. They had their downs. The Jewish people are consistent. Truth is consistent. Truth doesn't change. We the Jewish people is the greatest miracle and the greatest proof of God's divinity. People die, nations dissolve, 
But the only thing that stays, and the only thing that's current and consistent, is the Jewish people. The, Torah, the commentator and the well-known book called the Chayvah Salavavis, made by Rabbi Bachya ben Ibn Ezra, Rabbi Ibn Bachya says that God told Moshe, what's the secret for Jewish survival? He explained to him, it says, the very fact of the eternal Jewish people being forever, for eternity, that is the message, that's the revelation that God was telling Moshe when he first met him on Mount Chorev when he saw the burning bush. Moshe comes to God on the burning bush and says the Jewish people are suffering in Egypt. The Jewish people were going through the most difficult time. Their children were being killed in mass, being thrown into the Nile River, stuffed into walls, bathed in Pharaoh's blood. And God tells Moses, look at this bush. Everything around it is burning, but the bush does not get consumed. What was Moshe telling? What was God telling Moshe? You want to know if something's true? You want to know if something is going to, if this is what is the right thing to do? Look at eternity. Look at its divinity. Look at its consistency. The Jewish people are like the burning bush, meaning that the same way everything around them may be going through destruction. Yes, they may be having a hard time, and they may be burning, but they will not get consumed. They'll go through fire, they'll go through hell, but they'll never get consumed. They'll be there for eternity. This is what God tells the Jewish people. When Moses asks God, how should I identify to the Jewish people? Who came to me? Who told me? He says, tell them, God was in essence telling the Jewish people, the same way I am consistent, so too you will always be consistent. The same way I am eternal, you will always be eternal, regardless of what happens to you. Listen to this fascinating idea. What day was Pesach this year? When was the first day of Pesach? What day of the week? This past Pesach. was Thursday. Whatever day the first day of Pesach will be, will be Tisha B'Av. At Bash. You'll always know the first day of Pesach will be the same day as Tisha B'Av. What is God telling the Jewish people? Well, look at the holiday of Pesach. On the holiday of Pesach, we celebrate the Seder. It's seemingly anything. You know what the Seder means? Order, system. It seems like anything but a Seder. The time you're supposed to wash to eat, you're washing to eat a vegetable. You think you're going to eat, you're really sitting there and say, reading a bunch of stuff, and then you're dipping things, you're moving things, you're going here, there. It seems like everything is just all over, just to ask the kids questions to keep them awake. Not only that. You notice there's no blessing. We mentioned this once before. You don't make a blessing on the Seder. What's the Seder all about? And then why is there no blessing? If it's a mitzvah to say the story of the going exodus of Egypt. And someone who explained, a great commentator from the Ger, uh, Ger dynasty, his name was the Svasemis, once explained. And he says, because the Seder, the Haggadah, the story of Pesach, is something greater than something that needs a blessing. A mitzvah that I command you to do, I make a blessing. What's a mitzvah? God tells you, you have to do something which you yourself on your own wouldn't think of doing. Putting on tefillin, putting on tzitzis, lighting Shabbos candles, you wouldn't think of it. So therefore you have to make a mitzvah. Thank you God for giving me that mitzvah that I now sanctified it with. The Seder, the Haggadah, is called menschlich. You know what menschlich means? It's just human. Somebody does something good to you, what do you got to do? Say thank you. So what are you doing on the day of the Seder? You're thanking God for the miraculous events that happened. That you need a bracha for. On the contrary. If I make a bracha and I say, Asher Kedishanu, that God sanctified me, what does that sound like? God forced me to say thank you. You're really going to mean it. But it goes even further. It's like, by the way, another example. You know, there's a mitzvah, one of the Ten Commandments is to honor your parents. You ever make a bracha before you honor your parents? No. Because it's something which is normal that every human being, it's a sign of gratitude. Your parents brought you into this world, you have to respect them. Why some people used to say, if you're going to start making a bracha before you honor your parents, a person will never do it because he has to get ready before he makes the whole blessing, you know. By the time he turns around, his parents will be gone, the type of thing, you know. So. But part of being a mensch is having acknowledgement for somebody that's something good for you. Part of being a mensch is recognizing when somebody's kind to you, saying thank you. The Seder is that time that we say thank you. But even more so, when we talk about a Seder, 
The Seder is the time that we're celebrating. What are we celebrating? The exodus of Egypt, the Jewish people's high. It's always on the same day when there's Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av is the time of the Jewish people's low to let us know that they're interrelated. The same Jewish people, the same God that took us out of Egypt is also with us and taking us through those tar- turbulent times. Not only turbulent times as a nation, but turbulent times as an individual. And the same God that put us through and gives us the celebrations in life gives us the sad occasions in life because He's with us all the time and He's going to bring us and even during the times that it looks like that it's difficult, He is there with us as well. That's consistency. Not only when times are tough, not only when times are great, but even when times are tough, God is with us in every single case and the Jewish people continue to thrive, not only survive, notwithstanding everything they've gone through. That is the biggest proof of the Jewish people's survival, but of Jewish divinity and the authenticity of what God is all about. A fascinating story is told. You know, right when Eichmann was being brought to trial, so they kept him in the Israeli prisons. And one of the people that, the problem was that in the Israeli prisons there's other Israelis as well. And at that time as well, who were the people that were Israeli? If there were Ashkenazic descent, they were people that probably wanted to kill Eichmann more than anybody else. So they had to keep him away from the Ashkenazic Jews. So who did they keep him next to? There was a fellow, his name was Shalom Nagar. He was a Yemenite Jew. Nobody knew at the time, but he was the one that was like, so to speak, Eichmann's um, prison cellmate. In fact, he was the one that pulled the lever to kill Eichmann. You know, from the, when they hang, hung him on the gallows. For years, nobody knew about it because it was dangerous for them. They didn't want retaliation from the Germans, whatever it may be. In the later years, in the 2000s, they publicized who he was. At that point already, this fellow Shalom Nagar was out of prison. He was living in Kiryat Arba. And he was studying all day in Nikola, and so on. The German television came, and they wanted an interview. The guy that killed Eichmann, right? So he said, sure, you can come interview me. But uh, one condition. You're going to have to come interview me in the kolal where I learn in Kiryat Arba. So they asked him. And the German television came and they came into the kolal and you can see they barely can stand there because everybody's packed. People sitting and studying and pouring over the Talmud. So they asked him in the interview, I don't understand. I could have made a nice um, you know, studio. Could have came there asking the same questions. Why do you have to come here where we so noisy and everybody running around? So he says, because I wanted to prove to you they're not just are the Jewish people still alive. Not only are the Jewish people still surviving after the Holocaust, but the Torah is alive. The Jewish people are thriving. They're back to studying Torah. And this is the victory to Hitler. We won. You couldn't get us. Not only did you not kill our bodies, but you didn't kill our souls. We will continue to study the Torah. We will continue to thrive. This is as we read and we talk about right before Tisha B'Av, To remember the promise that God gave us in this week's Torah reading, God will return the Jewish people back to the Holy Land of Israel, have mercy on us and take us out of this pitiful exile and bring us about the coming of Moshiach.